Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we are joined by Taylor Colbert. If the name last name sounds familiar, it's because in our previous podcast episodes, we were talking to Taylor's sister, Krista. So it's really fun to have these two conversations um, bookend back to back. But I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk with Taylor. Taylor is a lifelong horse person, and she's also a PhD candidate in theater and uh, performance at City University of New York. And she's writing her dissertation on 17th century animal performances in Europe, where she's looking specifically at how cultural narratives about animals shape the ways that humans and animals respond to one another. So Taylor attended the uh, recent dressage camp. And while, while we were waiting for people to sign in first thing in the morning, I asked Taylor this question of, so what is your dissertation about? And Taylor started to describe what, what she was writing about. And I was absolutely fascinated. I could have spent the whole morning just talking to her about the dissertation. But we had dressage camp, so I couldn't. But I thought, you know, I want to learn more. And these podcasts provide a great excuse for me to indulge in saying, Taylor, I want to learn more. But before I ask about your dissertation, just fill us in a little bit on your horse background, because I think it's actually quite relevant to some of the things we're going to be talking about. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm excited to be here. Um, Yeah, so um, my background, some of this will sound familiar to what Krista said, I'm sure. So our earlier experiences were very similar. Um, But I, um, you know, as a kid, I I took lessons in sort of traditional lesson barns. And my mom and my sister ride. And so we got our halflinger pony when um, I was 13. And he has been an amazing teacher for the past 18 years. And um, we did dressage with him. And we ended up at a dressage barn where they bred uh, Lipizzan horses, and they did per- summer performances with them, um, inspired by the Spanish riding school. Um, and so Krista and I got to work there as working students, and we rode Lipizzans, and we helped with the performances, and rode in the performances, and you know got to got to see all that went on with that. And it's a fabulous background yeah, was... for you know, and, and for a teenager getting interested in horses, it's just a fabulous, fabulous background. Yeah. Oh, it was. I mean, you know, looking back on it, it's like, wow, I can't believe I had that that chapter. Yeah. And then so after that, I we both, Krista and I both continued to ride dressage with other trainers, and I taught pony camp and taught lessons, and um, then eventually ended up in graduate school in. Um, New York City, and I sort of took a break from horses for a while. And at some point in my PhD, um, actually in my in one of my early um, comprehensive exams, I was in the oral exam, and we were talking about movement. And I brought up my background with horses, and and 
you know, movement in relation to like the performance I had done with the liposons. And my whole exam committee was like, you have to write about this. This is so interesting. <laughs> and it had never occurred to me that I could actually write about animals or horses in an academic context. So that's how I ended up there. <laughs> so tell tell us about the your thesis. Yeah. So my dissertation is on 17th century animal performances in Europe um, and performance is uh, fairly broadly interpreted in my dissertation. And I'm looking specifically at how um, sort of cultural narratives about human and animal learning and human and animal bodies, how those shape the way that humans and animals actually responded to each other. Yeah, that's sort of in a short nutshell what my dissertation is about. Okay, so what does that mean and what have you discovered? Yeah, so I mean, for people who work with horses, I think obviously we know that animals respond to us. Um, but for people in an academic context, that's not necessarily obvious. And so I'm, it's based on this idea that even in very coercive or violent situations, humans and animals are responding to each other's behavior, which even, you know, in the 17th century, they weren't always very kind to the animals they worked with. But they, or to the people. Or to the people. Right. But there were these, these interactions across species and the way that they understood. So the way they understood bodies is very, very different from how we understand bodies now. They didn't know that blood circulated. They thought that bodies were comprised of the four humors, which were black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. And the balance of those four humors determined everything from your gender to your mood to whether you were healthy or not. So like in terms of human medicine, there's a lot of bloodletting that happens to rebalance the humors. And, but this also applied to animals, that they thought animals were also comprised of the four humors. Um, and so that completely changes how they understand the way that bodies interact with each other as well, and what it means to share a space with, a, with another body, and how emotions circulate through a space um, is really impacted by that. So looking at things like that, to think about how they understood how animals, why animals were doing what they were doing, and why they were behaving the way they were behaving, but also looking at sort of more fictional narratives about animals and looking at sort of the words that were used to describe animals and thinking about how those shaped the way that they interacted with them. You told me that you divided your thesis up into three chapters. So the first chapter you're looking at what? So my first chapter is on the um, 17th century French aristocratic stag hunt, which is really interesting. And it's totally a form of performance because they get all dressed up and the aristocrats are showing off their horses and their dogs and, you know, it's, and there are, are even sometimes spectators watching the, the hunt. But what's really fascinating about it is how um, sort of the sensory, the way that the humans understood the sensory abilities of the dogs and the, the stag really shaped how they actually formed the hunt and sort of the way that they approached the hunt and how, like the strategies they used, the way they moved in formation, how they set it up. And there's also all this stuff about, they thought stags were really, really intelligent. And that's one of the reasons why they were a worthy, they were considered sort of a worthy opponent for an aristocratic hunting party. So I, I just saw, since we're on Zoom, I just saw Dominique make a sort of, oh, Oh, surprised kind of expression. And I did the same thing when you told me this because this is so at variance 
with how we regard animals coming into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. That this, especially regarding horses, this idea that horses are stupid animals, and in general, animals are, are stupid, is that, well, wait a minute, what happened? What happened? So, so I wanted to know more. Yeah. So stags are, yeah. So, so the attitude towards animals sounds very different from what has been passed down to us. Yeah. Um, it's very different. I mean, their, their understanding of animals, they think the animals have whole like moral, emotional lives. So they do come up with this distinction that animals are not rational, whereas humans are rational. But there's all these examples where it's very clear that it's causing humans a lot of anxiety, that animals are showing signs of rationality. And they're like, well, it's happening because of X, Y, and Z. And it's it makes them very nervous. But yeah, I mean, they do think that animals have complex thoughts and emotional lives. And that, for example, the stag, um, there's all this stuff throughout the the hunting literature about how the stag will pretend to be really energetic when he's not so that they won't think that he's getting tired or that stags enjoy listening to flute music and it makes them calm okay like like there's all this stuff about like the stags having this aesthetic appreciation for things which i find really fascinating that that they're hunting these animals but but that the intelligence of the animal is what makes them a valuable hunting object so it's only the nobles mm. and the king who yes. are allowed to to hunt the stag. Mm-hmm. And then what was their feeling towards horses then? Yeah. I mean, if you read like the some of like, sort of the classic, early classic dressage texts like Pluvinel and Cavendish, both of them really place a pretty high, high value on the intelligence of horses and on the emotional lives of horses and so later in the in the 17th century you have Descartes who's the one who says no animals are just machines and they're you know they have no feeling and actually Cavendish I mean it's just it's just bizarre really in this in the brief summaries of Descartes that I've heard that you know there is this well if they if they are that they don't have emotions because they don't have a soul and they don't feel pain the way that we feel pain. And so if they're showing distress, it's just to protect the body, but uh, they don't they don't actually feel pain. They don't feel emotions. And so it doesn't, they're just machines and we can treat them however. It's like, well, wait a minute. What happened to the stag is this, is this intelligent being that appreciates flute music? Yeah. And I mean... And- like in William Cavendish's, one of his treatises on horsemanship, he kind of, he rips D- Descartes apart. Like, he's like, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, and, he, you know, he he says horses are really intelligent and they're smart. Otherwise, how could they learn? I mean, what's, what's fascinating, too, about some of these hunting treatises is that when they talk about training the dogs and training the horses, one of the things they bring up is that the dogs have to enjoy hunting or they're not going to be good at it. Mm. Yeah. Do they go into any detail on how the training was achieved? Um, A little bit. They do talk about teaching the dogs to follow the horn so that when the they blow the horn and they one person will shoo all the dogs away from him and then the other person will have like a bag of meat and feed them all a bunch of meat when they come down. 
positive reinforcement mm -hmm. in the 17th century. Yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing is new under the sun. No. And at, actually at the end of the hunt, um, there's this whole ritual, ritual at the end when they're um, cutting up the stag about which parts of it you give to the dogs and actually which dogs you give it to because the dogs have different roles in the hunt. There's like the bloodhounds and the then the ones that are actually the running, like the chasing, the ones that are chasing the stag. Um, there's this whole order that depending on how they behaved in the hunt, you give it some to this dog first and then you give some to this dog second. And yeah. So Descartes was what, the 17th century? He, he was... And these aristocratic that you're studying, are they, so they're later, because there were different currents throughout the history where I suppose they they changed their minds and different philosophers had different ideas about uh, animals. Were they later? So most of the hunting trees, yeah, so Descartes was actually later than some of the stuff that I'm looking at. Oh, he was later. Um, he comes at the end of the 17th century. Yeah, and the stuff that I'm, or he, yeah, end of the 17th century, um, and the stuff that I'm looking at was first printed at the end of the 16th century, and then was printed and translated throughout Europe. One one of the reasons I'm looking at the text I'm looking at is um, it was printed in the late 1500s initially in French, and then it was translated into pretty much every other language um, in Europe and really reprinted widely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Descartes was later, but he was one current. He's no. not necessarily even later. He, I'm sure there were, I know there were other philosophers that thought he was completely yeah, off track. They definitely were. But it's interesting to see that beforehand, and even in, um, how do you say antiquity in English? Like um, in oh, Greece, antiquity? how do you say that period in antiquity? Mm -hmm. Antiquity, yeah. <laughs> same word. Yeah, that they were more, in a way, had a way of looking at the animals that is kinder, certainly, <laughs> than Descartes. And I suppose that was lost for a while, but was rediscovered. Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if kinder is the word I would use. <laughs> um, like, they're, they're, mm. like, in this time period, there is appreciation for animals' emotional lives, but they're also doing live dissections of animals, doing vivisections. And they don't, I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of animal cruelty and there's a lot of animal cruelty as performance, but there's also a lot of cruelty mm -hmm. to people as performance. So they have just this, yeah. you know. You know, giving people to eat to lions yeah. in front of a, <laughs> of yeah. a whole crowd in antiquity. But I think there's always been different strains within, at any given time, there's different strains of how people interact with animals. Mm. But certainly what came down to us in the modern world was not this strong sense that animals are intelligent. We've had to really claw that one back, as it were, you know, that this, this strong pressure against being anthropomorphic and um, that everything that what animals do is based on instinct and that they, uh, and every time there is some evidence that animals do something like use tools, for example, the, the Jane Goodall work. Oh, well, let's redefine what a tool is, or let's redefine what it means to be human, that this absolute insistence on we are different and separate from. And, and superior. superior. Yeah. In spite mm. of what Darwin said, that, mm. yes, 
throw it, throwing in the inconvenience of Darwin into our lovely feelings of superiority. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about the time period that I'm looking at is that there is less of a binary between human and animal. Like the term animal actually doesn't appear very often. Um, and I think I'm, I'm forgetting which book this came from, but there's a scholar who's written about how this, this human animal binary came up later. And actually the terminology that you see really often in um, the 16th and 17th centuries is uh, birds and beasts and fishes, or you see the use of the word creatures, but he, the word creature can also be applied to humans. So there isn't this idea of there's the human and the animal. There's a, a lot more multiplicity and a lot more nuance of categories than just two. So if, if we were having this conversation in the 17th century, we would be talking about beasts. Yes. Not animals. Yes. Okay. When was Linnaeus? So the, so that would animals have come in with Linnaeus and the, so it's the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom. Yeah, that would have been later. Um, I think it starts to shift in the 1700s. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So beasts were not necessarily considered stupid no. or lacking in emotions. They had the four humors. Yes. They were, not, they were not necessarily treated kindly, but then nor was anybody else yeah. treated kindly. Exactly. Did they consider the animals to know right from wrong? Oh, yeah, they did. And actually, there's quite a few accounts of animals being put on trial. And... <laughs> You know, this isn't my primary field of research, so I've I've looked at this more and anecdotally, and I haven't looked at a lot of the primary materials myself, but there are some folks who have written about these trials where animals are put on trial and tried with lawyers and everything, the whole works. For doing what? Do you remember? Oh, a whole, a whole variety of things. Um, I think there was a beehive that was put on trial. Okay. I'm not sure what the beehive did. <laughs> Um, I know steal were, some pollen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I know that there were um, like pigs put on trial for mauling humans. Dogs were put on trial for stealing things. There were horses that were put on trial for witchcraft. Yes, yes. Um, there was yes. yes, there was a horse in I want to say the late 1500s. I would have to check the dates. Um, whose name was Morocco, and his handler was named Banks. He was also referred to as Banks's horse. And he would do all these amazing tricks that, you know, Banks would tell him to go pick out the person in the audience with a flower in their pocket and he would go do it. And so he would do all these amazing tricks, but the, the Banks and Morocco got accused of witchcraft. Um, and there's sort of multiple um, possible threads, I think, of how how they ended um, but one of the one of the stories is that they they were tried and convicted of witchcraft and, and burnt and burnt okay. um i'm not sure i'm not sure what what came there's there's a story and i've forgotten where i heard it and it was so so ugh, that i didn't want to hear it ever again but one horse that i read about was burned alive yeah because he was accused of witchcraft that's and we are we are, as a species, we are capable of just some dreadful things. Yes. So the so that this gets to your second chapter, doesn't it, on performances? Yeah. So um, my second chapter, one of my one of the the performers I might actually focus on is Morocco and Banks. But I'm looking at 
sort of more popular performances or street performances. And I'm really looking at how the perform human performer and animal performer were interacting on stage and how they were responding to each other and then how that was being woven into a narrative for the audience to understand um, and how those there was interplay between mm -hmm. those two things. So tell us more. <laughs> well, I you, I might have to wait to tell you more because I have not started writing that chapter yet. So <laughs> okay, I'm still on chapter one. <laughs> but yeah, that's my second chapter. My third chapter will be on displays of exotic animals. And I'm looking at how audience responded. Audiences responded to displays of exotic animals, particularly within the context of narratives and of colonialism that were coming out of the Americas. So going back to yes. Morocco, were there indications of how he was trained? Yes. Actually, in uh, Gervaisi Markham, um, I'm pretty sure it's Gervaisi Markham, he wrote a bunch of treatises on horsemanship and animal husbandry in the late 1500s. And he, or early 1600s, I'm not quite sure which one, um, but <laughs> sometimes I can't keep track of dates. But he... Yeah. Uh, has a chapter at the end of one of his books on horsemanship where he talks about how he thinks Morocco was trained. And he's saying this wasn't witchcraft, this wasn't magic. Um, here's how you could train him to do all these things. And it's mostly a combination of negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement. So definitely using a lot of increasing pressure, but then also feeding him treats when he gets it right. So you, you're, you're asking Morocco to go pick out the woman with a pink flower in her, in her pocket so how how did they train that i think did he speculate was the was the woman with the flower in the show that that would be my first that would be my first uh thought is that she's she's part of the team uh no he would actually pick out an audience member i mean this is also an area I need to do some more research on still. But I think what uh, Markham talked about in that book was how they taught him to count. And I think that he was talking about tapping his leg with a stick and then connect connecting it to a, a cue to, to count. Which is would not be that different from how many people today would yeah. teach that. Yeah. Nothing new under the sun. Yeah. <laughs> but for sure, in a lot of those performances, you either have the human who wants to show again their superiority and how they can have even a tiger do anything they ask of mm -hmm. it. You know, such a great trainer, how can he have a tiger do these things? Or I suppose to marvel at the animal's intelligence. You know, in this case, when you show an animal that knows how to count or pick a person in the audience, you want, you want to show mm -hmm. what a genius he is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What a special horse, different horse he is from all the other main, you know, ordinary exactly. horses. Exactly. This one is a genius. <laughs> That's kind of what Markham, in his speculation about how the horse was trained, he's sort of saying this wasn't a, an outstanding horse. It was just, here's how it was done. Yeah, any horse could be taught this way. But that's what Walt Disney has done all, you know, since we've, we've, We've had relationship with all these Disney animals all, all our lives because they were very special animals. They had something that right. the other animals yes. didn't have. Yeah, and I mean, what's what's really interesting to me about Banks's horse and what I don't know, you know, I, I need to do a lot more archival research on this and I don't 
one of the challenges of, of this kind of work is that it's really hard to find evidence sometimes. But I'm really curious about how did sort of the everyday audience members to those performances respond to him? And what, what did they think of him? And that kind of evidence is very, very hard to come by because, you know, all of these performances were ephemeral. They were live, they were embodied and they didn't leave many traces. They didn't leave a script. So mm -hmm. we might have the occasional anecdote in the archive, but even that is just one person's recollection of it and who knows what their agenda was and why they printed this. And it, you know, it even comes down to like who had access to materials to write on and whose writing got kept. So, yeah. you know, some of this mm -hmm. is, you have to, you have to be creative about it and imaginative and sort of find in the archive, like the outlines of the thing and then be like, okay, I have the outline of this. So like, what if this is what? <laughs> Some of it, some of it is, is speculative, but that's kind of fun that it's so imaginative. Well, certainly we, we hear a lot in, I know I've been surrounded by writers who were in performances and writers who were artists. And even in their training, when they were training horses outside of, of, the, of the show, the way some of them talked about the, their animals, their horses, their relationship with their horses, their relationship and, and how the animal felt and saw the stage. Very romantic, you know, a lot of very fun things to hear. But, you know, if when, when you started looking at all these stories and narratives from a scientific point of view, it was a great story. But, you know, that's not what was happening. <laughs> but what an interesting opportunity, Taylor, for you, because Dominique was deeply involved in that performance world. Never mind that their stories had no basis in science. In the 17th century, they didn't have a basis in science. So it, it's almost like you have a time machine opportunity to say to Dominique, what were some of those stories that performers told about their relationship with their horses and the relationship of the performance and well there was because I was you know head of marketing there was also the story that that I told about what was happening and that story was very much I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna it, interrupt for just a second because I know every every podcast episode I introduce you as one of the co-founders mm. of Kabalia but it's been a while now since Cavalia it has been a while. was touring and not everybody will have these amazing images in their head of what mm -hmm. Cavalia was as a theater performance. So, mm. well, yeah, so it was a, we had um, in the end, uh, because it's, it's, it doesn't exist anymore, but we had two shows touring throughout the world. And um, in a nutshell, it was like, we would say it was like Cirque du Soleil with horses because it was a mix of acrobatics and, and dance and of great visuals and, and horses. But I think more relevant to what we're talking about today was the fact that traditionally um, shows with horses were done under the big top in a round. And the way that the, because originally circuses were mostly horse acts and the horse 
and the, the, the trainer or tamer, whatever you want to call him, the distance between the two was the length of the, I don't know how you say that in English, la chambrière, the, the, the big, big whip. whip. Yes. Yeah, the, the long whip, the lunging whip, yes. if you like. And so the animal would always be at the tip of the whip. And the, all the animals, and, you know, even nowadays, you can still see those traditional circuses in Europe. And some of them are, you know, they're amazing because you have these beautiful horses. They're all the same color. They're all, you know, purebred horses. And so they're in a round, you know, for two hours turning this way and turning that way. And, and they, it's always the superiority of the tamer or the trainer over his perfectly well-trained horses. And all the horses are basically doing exactly the same thing in pairs or in fours or in, you know, it's like a ballet, uh, a corps de ballet. And so that already existed and we wanted to do something different and we wanted to, to not present that kind of relationship between the artists and the horses. We did not want the tamer to be over and above the horses, showing how well-trained his horses were. We wanted each horse to be able to have its own personality and do its own thing, and sometimes not do what the trainer was asking. And people loved that, you know, they, and it was real because, you know, there was a lot of liberty and we we took away the round the 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 we we were in a big big space which was completely different because the horses were no longer at the tip of the whip so there were other ways to to train the horses so that they would you know do because there was some uh, latitude for the horses to do or not do but you know you still have to present a show so there still has to be coherent and it can't be free for all on stage although you know even in the beginning because there was kind of a story of the relationship between horse and men throughout history so in the beginning we just we would just let the horses on stage and so that was you know, it, it, it was a little bit of a free-for-all and we wanted it like that. It was actually quite beautiful because the horses would come in, they would roll, they would, some for some of them, it was their introduction to stage, to the stage and to the applause because there was nothing they had to do. They just had to go in as a herd. But anyway, so it was kind of not doing the exact opposite philosophically from what was done traditionally, where this, this relationship of superiority, what we wanted to present was a relationship of friendship, of collaboration with the animal, more freedom, more space. And, you know, you, so you would have this horse had this personality. And as a matter of fact, when some of them retired, we had to redo the acts because this new horse did not have the same personality and it didn't work anymore. You know, some of the acts even that were the climax of the show, when the first, you know, when all the first horses started getting tired, we had to put this, this act somewhere else because it was no longer this big climax because this stallion with the, you know, the yeah. longest mane you've ever seen in your life was now retired and it was not the same. And, and some of these horses had worked together for many years. And so when you lose that too, that teamwork, again, you know, it, it's, so it's not like 
the horses were that easily replaceable because they were allowed to have a personality. It's easier when you do a show and everything is kind of arm uh, like uniform yeah. because people won't notice if you change something. But when you have a star, you know, if Céline is not there anymore, people will notice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so when you have a star and they go because they retire or whatever, their contract is ended. Well, it's it changes everything. Yeah. So it it's um. It was trying to break away from that tradition of superiority and the animal being more of a, not a slave because, but, you know, I want to say more of like a, just one dancer amongst the others. And so the, the riders would over time develop quite a relationship with the horses they were working with. Yeah, they would. And, and you know, because I think, because sometimes the, 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 you know, it, there was what we as, as the founders of the company wanted to present and how it came to be. But then, of course, you know, this lasted for many years. I mean, for me, it was like a, almost a 15 year adventure. And we were not the only people talking about the show. All the artists were interviewed constantly, you know, throughout the year. And so, and they, they, you know, they were in the show and they each had their own little stories with their own horses. And, and so sometimes, you know, when I was listening and, and they kind of knew what people wanted to hear, you know, and so some of them were really good at, really pushing the envelope a little bit where I think this is a little bit too much, you know, because I wanted it to be real yeah. always, you know, I didn't want it, but people are so hungry. The public is so hungry for a story, you know, a great story. And, you know, they wanted to know about the animal. And sometimes people would say things like, for me, it wasn't true, you know, and because I was head of marketing every once in a while, I would tell an artist, you know, don't push it so much because what you said is, is not really true. But then you have to let people, you know, express themselves a little bit. So it was a balance to find. But, uh, but and afterwards, you know, I was hearing because when after all that, I kept contact with some of the, the writers and the artists and and they're still doing that, you know, when they're talking with their students, the way they talk about the animals is still a little bit of a romance for me anyway. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, Alex, where it can do harm too. When you start to, um, to, uh, to put intentions in an animal, you know, you can misinterpret and you can put them on trial. <laughs> And, you know, the animal was not trying to get a revenge or was not being, as we say, all, the, all these labels come oh. up too, right? Stubborn and all this. It's part of the, or or you hear, you know, this this horse is so brave. He has so much heart, you know, he he does this for, for because of the relation, well, because of the relationship we have would be more accurate, but you know, he's brave and he's doing this because he loves, um, well, you've heard these stories. He loves to jump. So it's, it's okay that I keep pushing him over bigger, higher jumps because he loves to jump. And he, you know, he's so proud when he gets the ribbon. Yeah. 
couldn't care less about the ribbon, you know. Um, so you hear all these things that, um, and so in a way, we we have maybe the opposite now, where we're putting so much emotions, and it's not that we don't think they, they they're not uh, sent. How do you say in English? Um, sentient. Sent. Yes, I, I can't. Yeah, it's a hard word. I can't to say, say that word. Language. It's a really hard word. Yes. Um, but what emotions? Yeah. You know, revenge, stubbornness. Yeah. You know, I think fear is a real emotion, but when you start giving them moral intentions, you're on a slippery slope in my mind. Those are some of the same emotions that were ascribed to animals and uh, and horses you know, 400 years ago, stubborn, brave, whatever. So not, so that hasn't changed either. But here you are in this time capsule. So what would you want to ask of Dominique about the uh, relationship that performers have with their animals? Because that's what you're writing about. Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear like, what are some of the stories that they tell about, about their animals? I'm going to stop us here. You'll have to wait until next time to hear Dominique's Cavalia stories. Taylor has sent me references for some of the books she mentions in the podcast. They're available in the show notes at equosity.com. And if you want to learn more about modern day clicker training, please visit my website at theclickercenter.com. So until next time, Train well and have fun with your horses.